0: And welcome to Thrift Shop Biography. This is the one about Pavarotti. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hello. How are you?
1: All right, how are you? Yeah, all right,
0: thanks. Good. So, this week we've been reading the autobiography of Luciano Pavarotti. (laughs)
1: Pavarotti. We're out of our comfort zone, aren't we? Because we're like pop music people and not opera buffs.
0: We are not opera buffs, it's quite safe to say. So... Taking that into consideration, what did you know about Pavarotti before you read this book?
1: Just really, that he's not a legend, one of the greats. That's it, just that general sweeping statement. Yeah. How about you?
0: Um, My very best friend, Frederick, was friends with Pavarotti. That's
1: amazing.
0: So I know about him. And I knew how genial and kind and sociable that man
1: was. Yeah, which really
0: comes across in the book. It
1: really does. Yeah. Does he have any nice things to say about him then? Yeah, lots. Oh, really? (laughs) How nice. Yeah.
0: Other than that, like you, I just know him as basically the face of opera for Plebs Like Me. Yeah,
1: Plebs Like Us, it's Ness and Dorma. (laughs) Yes.
0: Oh, and of course, he's done all those concerts in the 90s with the singers of the day. So Joan Osborne, who I love, there's like a duet. And of course, Grace Jones.
1: Yeah, Grace Jones talked about him because they did a duet.
0: Yeah, so that's also how I know him, Pavarotti and Friends. He did this series of concert oh. in the 1990s called Pavarotti and Friends where he would take the pop singers and do duets with them. Right. So he is just an icon of opera yep. for the masses. He is. Also very well regarded within the world of opera itself. Because mm. I know, for example, other opera singers who cross over to the mainstream aren't necessarily so highly regarded within the world of opera. Okay. I think Catherine Jenkins, I could be wrong with this. Oh, like
1: some of them have got popular just because went into no. some sort of reality world and got popular. Whereas yeah. he was an amazing personality and a genius at opera.
0: And did all that intensive training for years yeah. and years and is bona fide the Italian. We should just tell let's the story. Talk,
1: yeah, let's tell it. <laughs> Anyway, he was born in 1935. In Italy? Yeah, Modena.
0: Modena. Modena, Modena?
1: I think it's Modena, I did ask an Italian person.
0: What did they say?
1: I think she said Modena, because it's home of balsamic vinegar, isn't it? What is? Modena. If you look at any balsamic vinegar, it says Modena on it. Does it? Yes, I checked.
0: Didn't know that.
1: Yeah, he doesn't mention that. He doesn't
0: mention that he comes from the home of balsamic vinegar. I
1: know. I love balsamic vinegar. (laughs)
0: Anyway, so that's north central Italy, and it's just like a smaller town on the outskirts of a city. Is that right? Yes. And he lives in an apartment block with 16 other families who he says are all friends and relatives. So I guess it's kind of getting out into the rural. Italy yeah but he also says that when he is born he is the first boy to be born there in 10 years oh, that's
1: weird isn't it yeah
0: so that's... he's a bit of a little star everybody wants to come and see him yeah. because he's a baby boy He's
1: born a little diva isn't he in his environment yeah. yeah everyone loves him
0: yeah everyone loves him actually and they've continued to love him throughout his entire yeah. life he's but he's to returned that he has yeah <laughs>
1: yes
0: So dad's a baker, mum's a cigar maker, Mm. so it's a modest upbringing. You know what? He says, the first line of this book is, my childhood was ideal. Mm. He's eternally grateful and thankful for everything and I think we've read a lot of these books now when I read my childhood was ideal I was like oh thank goodness because I can't read another book about child abuse I can't
1: and then he goes through the second world war uh, (laughs) but as a child but he's still thinking of it as an idyllic childhood yeah because he's a positive thinker yeah love it but hey you can probably get through anything if you've got a foundation of love and and really a lot of people don't have that and that's probably what screws them up but he's so got so much love
0: so Support. much love and attention. Mm. He had an aunt. His mum had a sister who died just before he was born. She was called Lucia. And then so when he was born, he was called Luciano. And Granny absolutely doted on little Luciano, and he thinks it's because Lucia had died just before. So this little boy was born. I think maybe was the saviour for a lot of people because they'd lost Lucia so young. Mm. And along he came.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. But also he had a lot of love and he had a baker for a dad. Yes. So that's good times. Probably the old cigar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He said, actually, that his dad being a baker is what kind of really helped them through the war.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, because when, when f- nobody had food. Yeah.
0: They had bread
1: and salt. Oh, yeah. Also, his dad didn't have to sign up for the army because he was important. Mm-hmm. So that saved their family. Yeah. So he'd very likely have a dad-free family.
0: And also, they would stop the men who didn't go to war, would often be stopped on the streets. And if he just had to show his card and when it showed that he was a baker, they wouldn't bother him because mm. he's an essential part of a society, mm. providing everyone with their morning bread.
1: Yeah. Right, so when he was eight years old, he was having a lovely childhood. And 1943, it really hit their area. They were being bombed by the British and the Americans at that point Mm -hmm. regularly. And it really changed his life. They had to move out of their building. And their family ended up in a farm. Yeah. So he had a couple of years of his childhood where he had a farm life and he absolutely loved it. Yeah. Going out... With the animals and getting up really early and all the discipline of that. He says he saw every single type of animal making love.
0: I know. I don't know why
1: they say love. There's no love
0: involved. (laughs) It was kind of a detail he could have spared us. I know.
1: This is weird.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I found it a bit weird that he mentioned animals shagging.
1: Well, love. Love love. making. Yeah. Every type. Anyway, that's part of his farm education. He
0: loved rural life. He says even when he went through his whole life of being this big opera star, he would always kind of have this hankering to be back on a farm.
1: Yeah. He says at this point that he's now bought as an older man a lot of farmland just outside of Modena, so he can recreate that time when he retires. And by the way, he wrote this book in 1982, it was published?
0: 1981, because here's something. Yeah. So you found this book first. Yeah. And then I found it. What,
1: is yours longer than mine again?
0: No, I got mine from the charity shop for one pound and it's got his bloody autograph on the front cover.
1: That's amazing. And it's
0: signed Pavarotti 81.
1: Yeah, oh, right, because they usually put the price up in charity shops when they're signed.
0: I, yeah, they probably didn't yeah, notice. Yeah, so I have a signed copy of That's this book. Really yeah, pleased. I know. I'm really pleased.
1: Yeah. So actually, basically, right, he was really famous in 1981, but he actually got more legendary after this book was published.
0: I couldn't work out why he wrote this book in 1981 because he didn't come onto my radar till much later, yeah. and so I thought, was there even a demand? for the book in 1981. Nobody knew who he was, but actually from reading the book, I realised he really begun to cross over. Yeah, he was on TV
1: all the time. Yeah. He was like a big superstar. Plus by 81, he was only 45, right? But he was talking about retiring and, and not sure how long his voice would last and stuff. Wow. And saying his dad's 17, he still has a fine voice, but his dad's never had to do all these concerts. So he maybe didn't think his voice would last out. And it obviously really did because he preserved it so well, as he yeah. later explains.
0: Oh, that's one thing I loved about this book, not knowing anything about opera. I feel like I've had an education in opera. Me too. From Pavarotti and by the assembled cast. Yeah. So the book begins, actually, in at the beginning. Pavarotti says that when he started writing his autobiography, he realised, because he's really hard on himself, he yeah. realised it was going to be a negative Book because he doesn't like blowing his own trumpet. So he then asked people who had worked with him, managers, venue managers who had booked him. He's asked this cast of, I don't know, 20 other people all to write a chapter about him because he knew that they would blow his trumpet for yeah, him. Yeah, that's right. And then he could get on with telling his story. Yeah. But these other people could talk about his art and his work. Yeah. It's a
1: really nice sort of collage of his yeah. life, isn't it? From all different angles. Yeah. You get a real good sense of it.
0: His um, dad used to have all the records of all the tenors, like Mm. Caruso and stuff. Young, little Pavarotti would hear them when he was a little kid because his dad was a singer.
1: Yeah, like amateur, but passionate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, here's an interesting thing. His mum was very emotional. Pavarotti is known for, like, communicating the emotion in the song. So he says that he got his voice from his dad but the heart and emotion from his mum. So actually, they're both important. You know, they got together and had a, a child and the product is an amazing singer who can connect to his emotions. But here's the thing that I thought was really interesting. His mum gets so moved by music that she won't go and see him perform because she thinks it will overwhelm her.
1: Yeah, she can't handle it. Wow. She didn't even see him at Carnegie Hall because she would just be in bits. Wow.
0: She would probably
1: be wailing. Oh, mum! I
0: want her to. I want her to go and be in bits. I know. I Let, think he
1: probably wants his mum
0: there too. Yeah, but
1: it's kind of sweet, but I bet you she probably weeped before she even stepped through the door. She's one of those people. <laughs> what and then nuts. it might be like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> oh, it's World War Two. It's World War Two. Wow, so he was eight years old, and it's a terrifying. Oh. it's it's very close to him. Even though they fled to a farm, it's. Absolutely all round them So they say that Some of the partisans Call on their house To ask for bread Then the Germans come And say Have you seen any Partisans No Of course we haven't Terrifying That's absolutely terrifying At any point You could just be shot Yeah And then one night They stop his dad Even though he's a baker They take him into prison Because it was a retaliation Because some of the Fascists Been killed By partisans So it was a retaliation They were just Mm. going to kill Some random Villagers And the next day, they rounded them up. There was um, a really top fascist who was just going to pick a few to spare. And by total coincidence, Pavarotti's grandfather, years ago, had taken in this refugee who was this man who'd risen up in the Italian fascists. And it was him who was picking the person to spare and said, oh, that's my old mate's son. And took him out yeah, and the rest were wow. shot. It's a miracle he has a dad. And his dad lived so long and was mm-hmm. a great friend. He was often in operas, wasn't he? He was smaller parts yeah. of his operas and stuff. But together. Together. Yeah. And they managed to have a great life together. It's, it's by miracle. And he said, you know, although he's still a happy kid, he's wandering about, he can see a lot of his neighbours dead on the streets. Yeah. Some of the neighbours are hung. You know, it was really shocking He tries to describe what effect it had on him and basically he thinks that he stopped being a child at age eight and became an adult. But the positive was that he realised how precious life is and he threw himself into life from that point on and really appreciated being alive.
0: It's a shame then that at the age of 12 he went into a coma.
1: It is a shame, although it it backed up his, his belief when he survived it. He was very lucky to be alive.
0: So he just got some blood infection and couldn't walk.
1: He was read his last rites by a priest. Oh, my
0: God. He said he's lying in bed. He's lying in bed and his mum's with him and people are coming in to see him. And the mum's just saying, oh, yes, he's on his way out.
1: He's like, I can hear you.
0: (laughs) Then they sent for the priest to administer the last rites. And the priest come in and said, it is time now, little boy, to prepare yourself for heaven.
1: me. <laughs> that must be terrifying yeah, for right. a
0: 12-year-old.
1: The lesson from this would be, if your kid's in hospital, just read them nice stories and yeah. tell them everything's going to be fine. <laughs> he
0: did say his mum was over-emotional. I bet she's at the side of, like, oh, he's going to die. Oh, he's going to die. <laughs> That's Poor little boy. Then he says, a tenor came to sing in town. And his name was Benjaminiano Gigli? Yes.
1: Gigli? I'm going to say that's exactly right.
0: Okay, good. (laughs) And little Pavarotti, when he'd been listening to his dad's records. So when this tenor came to town to sing, he was so excited. And he said he ran backstage and threw his arms around him and just wanted to impress him. And he said to him, when I grow up, I want to be a tenor. Gigli patted him on the head and said, very nice, young man. And Pavarotti was like, I need to keep him talking for longer. So he said to him, how long did you study for? And Gigli said, I am still studying. Even though he's at the top of his game, every day he is still learning his craft. And Pavarotti said that has really stayed with him
1: Yeah,
0: and all through his career.
1: Great attitude. Yeah. I totally agree with it, don't you?
0: He was quite athletic as a young man. Yeah,
1: he loved sports.
0: He would play six to seven hours a day.
1: Yeah, he was out all the time playing, wasn't he? And he actually reckons that's one of the reasons he got large. When he got older, because when he switched from running around all the time to singing, he still carried on eating the same amount of food.
0: Right. He wasn't burning it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said that his mum encouraged singing as a vocation in life, but his dad didn't. Yeah. Because his dad was a singer and knew how hard it was. And like Pavarotti says, his dad had taught him that just because you've got an amazing voice... That's not everything you need to be successful in singing. It relies on so many other factors. So Pavarotti said to his mum and dad, he said, I've got a proposition for you. If you support me until I'm 30, if I haven't made it as a singer, I'll find a way to support myself.
1: Yeah, which is amazing because he says this at what? He's like 17, 18. It's a long time to support your son.
0: I know. It's quite egocentric isn't it oh. to go to your mum and dad and say I want to be a singer if you support me until I'm 30 30 yeah yeah it's a long
1: time but they knew it takes that long
0: yeah they did they yeah. and he does say when he says support he just means I just want to sleep in your house and eat your food yeah but I bet he ate a lot I
1: <laughs> bet he did <laughs> and to be fair he got himself a job at the same time
0: actually yes he got yes. a
1: teaching job so it oh he
0: loved being a teacher didn't he yeah, you're
1: being sarcastic <laughs>
0: Oh my God, it made me laugh so much. He said, I've got a part time job as a teacher, $8 a month. He said, I didn't like the students. I wanted to kill every single one of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know because this is such a nice man. Yeah, talking. everyone's
1: always romantic about <laughs> kids, aren't they? And he's like, no, little brats.
0: He hated it. Yeah. He really, but he did it for two years.
1: Yeah, no, he stuck it out. Yeah. Yeah, he, around this time, he met his wife, Adua Veroni, mm-hmm. who was training to be a teacher at that time. She actually became one. And Yeah, he couldn't really support a wife, so he couldn't get married. He hadn't got married yet because he didn't have enough money. So he got a job as a salesman. Insurance insurance salesman, which he was very good at because he's got a real people thing. People love him and he loves them. The key to people loving you is if you actually like them. Yeah. And he's so interested in everybody. It says at one point in this book he will talk to the... A taxi driver in the same warm tone as he'll talk to the head of the Met or anybody because he just loves all people. and doesn't see the difference in them.
0: Now, I was trying to remember which book it was. And I think it was Madonna's brother. Pavarotti was playing the Lincoln Center and him and Madonna had gone backstage to meet him. And they said when Pavarotti came in the room, he didn't make a beeline for Madonna like everybody else. And he went round and he shook every single person's hand and said, hello, I'm Pavarotti. How are you? Like, literally everyone. Like, everyone was equal, and he was going to talk to everyone. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting insight into him.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. They do say It does say in this book that he will meet every single fan until everybody, even if into the middle of the night, until everybody yeah. has had an autograph or whatever they came for.
0: Yeah, he, he said his wife would want to go home, yeah. and he'd be sometimes at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. He's still there hugging and signing and autographs. He, and
1: he actually loves it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a people person. So, of course, he can sell insurance.
0: Yeah, right. He's going into
1: family homes. Everyone loves him.
0: He was making $300 a month from insurance sales. Yeah. As a part time teacher, he was making $8. Yeah. And this
1: is 1960. Right. So There's loads of money.
0: Mm-hmm. Alongside this, what we haven't mentioned yet oh, yeah, is that he's important. actually getting professional voice training. Yeah. So, from about the age of 17 or whatever, he was with this professional tenor called. Polar, and he was with him for two and a half years, and then... When he graduated from the studies with Polar, he went over to another one where he studied with them for four years. So this is like seven years of Mm -hmm. professional tenor training before he even gets a professional singing engagement.
1: And for quite a lot of those years, he's only singing scales and practising breathing. They don't even let him sing any opera at all. Mm
0: -hmm. He's tuning his instrument.
1: It's incredible. And then when you actually think how long it takes to go... Because I thought, how can it take that long? Oh, I've underestimated the skill of singing, because if you think of a pianist starting to play and then getting to concert pianist, that's, of course, going to take you 10 years or so, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the same with the voice, because you're getting it to that level. I never really, really appreciated that what I'm hearing in an opera is that level of skill that's like a concert pianist vocal equivalent. Of course it takes that long. It's it's ah oh, it is a real educationist book, yeah. isn't it? To yeah. do with the breathing, the phrasing, the enunciation, so, and the diaphragm, the biology of it. There's so much to it. I mean it's obvious to some. Was it obvious to you? I didn't realise it. I didn't think about it. I thought it was interesting
0: as well how he says and his manager says that historically other people have been very technically brilliant of all those things you've just mentioned but the people who stand out are the people who are also able to connect to their emotion they are the people who transcend the world of opera and go over into the mainstream because opera fans go and love listening to the technicality of the art Mm. but in order to cross over to the plebs you also need to convey the emotion and give them something to latch on to. It's not
1: even just the blebs, it's also the expert opera goers. Because one of his friends who writes a chapter, I think it's his accompanist, says you can feel this wave of love coming across from the audience when he starts singing. Even if they don't know him, it's just this connection he's made. It's because he loves people and it yeah. comes across.
0: He's almost like, when I read that, I thought he's almost like a mythical figure that mm. could have existed at any point in time. I forgot her name. I meant to look it up. Who's the woman that Barnum brought over the singer?
1: Oh, yeah, her. can't remember her name yeah.
0: at all. <laughs> um, it reminded me of that, that people literally would travel across the country yeah. to see her. Mm. They'd never heard anyone or seen anyone like her before. I kind of got similar things with Pavarotti. It wasn't just that he was an amazing singer. He was just this presence mm. that needed to be seen in, in person, yeah. you know, to be experienced.
1: To be experienced, definitely. Mm. Yeah, and he talks about when he first went on tour with Joan Sutherland, yeah. who was a legend, he couldn't believe how she was doing it. So he'd stand and hold her diaphragm She's literally hold her stomach and try and work out how she was supporting her breath because it was all seemingly coming from her stomach and not her throat. And even though he knew some of that, she was doing it on another level. She said, yeah, she does all these exercises to support the muscles in your diaphragm. She was also a large lady. He thinks having a large build helps. Yeah. Although isn't essential. And then he started doing these muscle exercises until his diaphragm was really strong, as strong as hers. And it takes all the pressure off your throat so you can sing and sing and sing and never get tired. And he said when he came back off that tour, tour of Australia, his vocal doctor was like, oh, your, your tonsils are all pink and healthy. What have you been doing? And he's like, I'm not straining them. Not your to- your vocal nodules. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not straining them anymore. It's all coming from down here.
0: So after his training, yeah. this seven years of voice training, he did a couple of shows and he developed a nodule on his throat and at the same time he was just having this kind of confidence crisis and he wasn't getting anywhere after doing all this training so he kind of was toying with the idea of giving it all up He
1: was 25 he hadn't reached 30 yeah in fact basically says i'm going to give it up i'm going to do one more concert and then after that i'm giving it up and by saying that it just freed him it was like the last piece of wall because people always say Your worst barrier is yourself. Mm -hmm. And by saying that, that last barrier went down and he was totally free to sing and enjoy it. And then he was a singer. He said, that's it. I found it.
0: Yeah. So he does this concert in (laughs) Salsa Maggiore. Yes. (laughs) And he said something just clicked. Yeah. And he sung better than he's ever sung in his entire life. And he said that was a turning point in himself, not just his career, but in himself. And then he entered a competition in 1961 and he won. And the prize was to play the part of Rodolfo in La Boheme in Reggio Emilia. And I thought, oh, that sounds really good. But do you know what? It was only 25 miles away from the town he grew up in. <laughs> so I think this is still really localised. Yeah.
1: But what's amazing is he learned a role, because that role did him well. He'd done that very role at the Met, the mm-hmm. La Scala, you know, Covent don't know, he came at something he was really known for, because it was exactly suited his voice. So he talks a lot about that as well, like being offered this role or that role. And he's like, it's not exactly in my range. Yeah. It will damage my voice. Some of the other opera singers who were writing in this book say that was really clever of him because although people say, well, you should play that, you should play that. He's like, no, because he said no, he's preserved his career. He's gone for the long run, hasn't he? Yeah. He totally nailed that part and the audience loved him. And at that show, La Boheme, an agent came to see and he'd come to see someone else. But he was bowled over by Pavarotti and, and basically took him on. But Pavarotti said, I'm not ready yet. I've only got one part down. I want to have about three operas under my belt. So he said, I'll wait for you. But eventually it was that very agent. He was a top opera agent. And he got in parts by saying, they'd phone him and say, can we have this top opera singer? He said... Yes, I'll arrange that if you'll also take this young unknown in a smaller part. And that's how he got him in.
0: But he said even that took time. Mm. And it was only down to the fact that this agent was so respected that if he was telling people this new tenor is good, well, he must be good. Because there's a lot of tenors around, you know.
1: Yeah, he does say how hard it is to get well known in opera. Because you can play all these massive opera houses but nobody at the Met in New York has yeah. heard of you. Yeah, and I wonder now because there's so much Royal Opera House live live streamed and in cinemas, you can get a lot more famous more easily because they never televised any of this back yeah. then. Yeah, because he really put a lot of work in all around the place before he got in. Mind you, he had a, he had quite a lucky break fairly early on because he was playing Dublin Opera House, mm. that's kind of small gig, when this woman from Covent Garden was actually on a mission to find unknown smaller parts to cover at Covent Garden.
0: Yeah, because she had Giuseppe Di Stefano playing Covent Garden, but he was notorious for bowing out of roles early and stuff and not doing the whole run. So she was always sure that when he was playing, that she would have a young Italian tenor who could step in at short notice. And so she hopped over to Dublin to find a singer who might cover, because obviously you need somebody early in their career because you want to bring them over, but they might not ever get the chance to sing. Yeah, exactly. So she found young Pavarotti in Dublin and was blown away by him and said, look, I don't know if you're going to want to do this, but we've got De Stefano at the... Covent Garden Opera House I just need somebody there in case he doesn't fulfill his run
1: yeah an understudy basically yeah
0: and he and he agreed to come over yeah and then De Stefano did one and a half performances
1: the half is terrifying (laughs) isn't it and
0: Pavarotti (laughs) took over yeah
1: he took over and did the rest of the whole run at Covent Garden
0: and he was a hit
1: yeah went down a storm yeah and that made his name in London and then he did Glyndebourne from that as well so he's well-known in London, mostly. That was his first big hit, really.
0: But also the key to his career, kind of also moving on a bit, is the Joan Sutherland yeah. connection. Now, how that happened was the woman who was the booker for the Covent Garden Opera House used to manage Joan Sutherland or work with her in some capacity and her husband. Yeah. And Joan Sutherland was going on tour and needed a male voice for a couple of the songs. So this woman from Covent Garden Opera said, oh, you need to come and hear Pavarotti. He's also such a nice man. So it will be a joy to tour with him. Joan Sutherland and her husband said the thing that really went over was that Pavarotti was tall Because Joan Sutherland is this towering giant and every other man they get to duet with, they said it looks like her son, little boy. And the fact Pavarotti was tall was just like great. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of a long relationship and he went to Miami, they toured Australia. And of course, the whole world at this point is coming out to see Joan Sutherland. She's possibly the most famous opera singer in the world. And he's been chosen to sing with her. This is a real consolidation yeah it goes on
1: years as well doesn't it and plus yeah. that breathing thing he said was the very last thing that he needed to become a, an amazing singer yeah, yeah. he
0: learned so it was a really important part of his career yeah. and he really learned a lot and yeah and they just seem to love him and he loves them <laughs> there's a
1: chapter in the book of the two of them and it's such theatrical banter isn't yeah, it? Yeah. oh he used to take time off in his family home by the sea that would be nice wouldn't it richard <laughs> wouldn't it be nice time off Yes, Joe. It's, it's, it's really good When he was hanging out with friends from Glyndebourne He was out riding a horse and he hurt his ass so much He couldn't even sit down A phone call came from Sunday night at the Palladium And it was a De Stefano again Yeah And dropped out last minute so God, he, he sounds
0: went... like a nightmare, doesn't well, he? Well,
1: he's made Pavarotti's career, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs>
0: He said that he didn't want to do it because his ass hurt so much yeah. and they had to explain to him you don't understand. Sunday night at the Palladium is like the Ed Sullivan show in America. Exactly. It will make it can make a career. And it did. So get your ass on a train. Your
1: sore ass. <laughs> sorry Fanny, sorry ass. He
0: said he said it was all a rush. They shoved a steak sandwich in my hand to give me strength, but all I wanted to do was sit on it to cushion my <laughs> ass. <laughs> so he sang on Sunday night at the Palladium. With a really <laughs> sore spine,
1: and that made him famous. <laughs> and the audience loved him so much; they invited him back to star, basically to yeah. star in his. And actually, then you realise that it's his relationship with the television audience that made him way more famous than even the operas. Yeah, because he could reach more people in one night on television. Yeah. They said than some other famous opera singers have ever reached in their whole careers. And it's still the beginning of television, really, early 60s, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. he was probably the first opera star of television. He did mm-hmm. every chat show because they loved him because he was really quick-witted and warm and singing. And so they did, they got him on all the shows, it seems like. Wherever he went, they get him on TV. And I actually reckon that he brought opera into fashion in the 60s, 70s, 80s in a way that is probably needed right now because apparently according to opera people, it's really on a lull right now. It's really suffering.
0: Actually, you're right, because the English National Opera, I think, has Might We close Will Rock down. You in it or yeah, something at the moment. Yeah, and they
1: are really in, under threat. Wow. And the opera house itself, the patrons are dwindling. You but know, it's so
0: expensive. Yeah,
1: he talks about it in this book, and he's so passionate. <laughs> he, he loves opera so much, and he wants everybody in the world to hear it, and he wants everyone to love it as much as him, because he knows the expense of Paying the whole orchestra, all the rehearsals, the fact that everyone on stage has been training for eight to ten years to begin with. You've got massively extravagant scenery and costumes, never mind all the people running the business, you know, and then just to house a small amount of people every night. And you only do two shows sometimes, don't you? You don't even do long runs. And he's saying it's against the odds to put opera on, and it was his mission to go to every country to try and do as many gigs, to meet as many people to go on as many TV shows to make everyone love opera so it would stay alive and thrive. And I reckon he single-handedly made opera huge. Mm. And I think there isn't a Pavarotti in in this age to do that. They actually need one to come Mm. along and save them. It is dwindling. They're really, really suffering financially.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Opera needs that.
1: It's only occurred to me since reading this book 'Cause I've then heard about the threats to the opera houses of today. And he's saying also the works are two hundred, three hundred years old. How are we gonna keep modern audiences coming to these they're not even contemporary anymore? It just does need an ambassador. Yes. You we might not see the likes of Pavarotti mm. in another lifetime. He is that special, isn't he? Yeah. The fear and the, the constant fear he has of, of his voice cracking on one of those high seas. He says, It doesn't matter how famous you are, if your voice cracks on one of those high seas, you're done. Oh, he says the whole,
0: the whole evening, the whole experience for the audience of being at the opera can be made or broken on you reaching and holding that high C (laughs) note. I mean, pressure. I know. He said you can have a really average first half of the opera, and if you can nail that high C, you'll win them over immediately. And then conversely, you can sing really well, but if your voice breaks on the high C, everybody's really grumpy with
1: you. Yeah. By the way, I Googled that um, thing where he sings nine high Cs in a row. It's in The Daughters of... The Daughters of something. An opera. Yeah. With the word The Daughters in. Yeah. And he... Does sing nine high seas in a row. So I was like, "What is all this talk of these high C's?" Oh wow! And and it says in the book that they used to only be that men would sing it in falsetto because it's so high, and then somebody came along and just sang it in their powerful voice. And then the audience demanded that every time. If the audience and the critics are something to really battle against. It they're not supportive. Yeah. And he says that it can really ruin the nerves of an opera singer because they always feel like they have to prove themselves. It's quite harsh. It's a it's a harsh. I think audience. They're, yeah. they're out to get you unless you're perfect, and then they'll love you. You know, it's it's that fine line.
0: You know the nerves that he suffers because they're very intense at times. And I think that if you're an emotional performer to give us what Pavarotti gives us, he is this highly emotionally charged being, I don't think you can have that without experiencing nerves and anxiety beforehand. If he didn't have nerves and anxiety beforehand, you wouldn't get the... Performing. He's just highly emotional, isn't he?
1: Yeah. But then at the end, he's so bloody happy that he's done it. He's the life and soul of the party and then greeting everybody and then going to dinner and eating everything and drinking everything and having the best time. And that's when he feels the most alive. Yeah. That's when it's all worthwhile and the best job in the world.
0: Yeah, I totally get that from this book.
1: Yeah, he, lo- he loves it, doesn't he? He loves yeah. it, but it's hard.
0: So he's kind of making it at this point, and he goes to La Scala. But then he knows that the next territory to break is America. So he goes to San Francisco. Hey, there's this female opera singer who's also massively famous, who grew up in the same yeah, town as him really at the nice. same
1: time. She's she's the most famous soprano.
0: Marilla Frené. Yeah, Frené?
1: she's like one of the most famous sopranos in the world and they came from the same town their families knew each other born in
0: the same month
1: yeah they used to get the bus to school together they yeah. had the same training teachers and then they were in loads of operas together yeah. and he said I'll just be in the middle of a song and look out across the stage and go wow I know her from childhood that's <laughs> yeah. my oldest friend I'm so happy to be on the stage with her
0: because yeah. they were at San Francisco together doing La OM and he got ill actually and he credits her With getting him through it, she would bring him minestrone soup. But the downside of being ill in San Francisco is that very soon he had his debut at the Met in New York and he just wasn't well enough for it. He was going to be there for a run of about 20 performances. Well, he did his debut and all the reviewers came and they are actually okay with him. But in the end, Pavarotti had to admit defeat and he went back to Modena. And it took him three months to get over the illness. Yeah. So he basically only did, I think, one or two performances at the Met yeah. after his debut and then somebody else had to take over.
1: I think he said he slept for three weeks solid. Wow. I mean, he was really, really ill, properly ill. Yeah. Yeah, but he, did, he got his Met debut again. It took about eight years. Yeah. And then it was triumphant.
0: So he's made it as an opera singer. And so what we have here, like when we talk about rock stars and all their albums, actually what happens now over the next few years is that Pavarotti basically sings in every major city with an opera house in a variety of roles in a variety of operas to much acclaim. And so he's the world's opera singer of choice. Mm. Do you know what? He doesn't have a formal agreement with his manager. I know, it's
1: brilliant. They never signed a contract and they're still together. Yeah. They just trust each other. That has
0: to be unique in the world of music. It's really nice, isn't it? Yeah, really nice.
1: And his manager is the one who really got him onto the telly and got him...
0: But he also says, because people have said to the manager, Oh, Pavarotti's success is just due to your marketing. He said, No, actually. He says, He's not the only opera singer I manage. I manage about 10. And he says, And I spend the same amount of time on all of them because it would be unfair to spend more time on a particular one. He says, Pavarotti's success is due to his talent and the charisma of the man. People just really, really like him. I think also what brought him to the masses is. The concerts as opposed to the opera. That's right. I was really interested to read this because it didn't even occur to me. And of course, it's so obvious how much harder doing a concert is as opposed to doing an opera. Because you're on stage on your own, having to sing all of those powerful songs one after the other. You don't get to sit on the side of the stage for 15 minutes while the soprano does her bit. Gosh, that's hard work, I'm isn't sure it? they'd
1: factor in the other odd person because he had that assistant who was training up to sing that became his secretary. He'd put her on sometimes, go, you sing that one.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sure there's a
1: bit of a few breaks, but yeah, yeah, you're basically on, and you've got no context for the songs either. Must be for opera lovers who kind of know this.
0: Oh no, I think it's for people who don't know opera who just want to hear the greatest hits, isn't it? Yeah, because
1: another thing that made him epically famous is that he got a recording contract in London. With some record company. So he was recording some of the classics. So if you went to buy an opera, you're often getting him singing on mm-hmm. it. That's how you really... And that's how you get rich. Yes. The concerts and the records is how you really clean up.
0: His manager said at the beginning of the 1980s, um, the Billboard Top 40 Classical LP chart, Pavarotti had eight LPs in the chart. It's like 20%. Yeah. yeah. 20% of all opera records sold in America... Had Pavarotti. It's a few sing. farms, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
1: Yes, yeah, And like,
0: of- this is at the beginning of the 80s. This is, I consider this before he actually properly crossed over, because I didn't know who he was in That's 1980. That's
1: true. This, this book is the mere foundation of his absolute legendary status. Yeah. Wow.
0: I didn't know until Ness and Dormer.
1: No, I did, I. Probably. Which was probably
0: 1990.
1: Yeah, what was that, Ness and Dormer? Was it, it is it, it football? Did I think it was it the
0: fo- Rugby World Cup adopted it as their anthem, didn't they? Was it football? It was football or rugby, you know, one of it them. It was a sport.
1: <laughs> and I actually went to the opera, it was Holland Park, and I can't even tell you what it was called. It was a relatively obscure title to me. It was only a couple of years ago. And uh, that song suddenly, I was like, oh, I know this one. <laughs> that's what it's like if you're not an opera person. I was like, oh, this one's from here, is it?
0: <laughs> I think then that's the point of the concerts yeah. is that the average person can go and hear the opera songs they know yeah. that they hear on adverts on the telly, yeah. rather than have to sit through a boring opera.
1: Probably, yeah.
0: I'm not saying operas are boring. I kind just... of
1: sometimes ridiculous storylines and stuff. Yeah. Not always. Some are different than others. Yes, of course. Huge variety of. When artists. I say
0: boring opera, I mean that's what the general unwashed, how
1: they consider it. I'm well, not calling it yeah, boring. I would be surprised if also major opera lovers go to the concert because you get a full orchestra, mm-hmm. you know, you get the songs just pure. You would They too wouldn't have to sit through the sometimes farcical storylines mm-hmm. and just get straight to the music that they love. So it's not just plebs, I reckon. I'll tell you, I've walked past the Met. Well, I've been to the Met. Must, maybe it's why I was walking past it because I was going. <laughs> And there's all these people, old New Yorkers getting out of cabs in furs, like actual furs with actual diamonds dripping off them. And I've never seen wealth probably anywhere in my life except coming out of cabs and going into the Met to their fancy seats. And I reckon somebody like Pavarotti is what's breaking through that because there aren't enough of those people to sustain Mm -hmm. opera. You have to appeal to a wider range of people. And those people will die out. Then opera will die with it. If you're not careful.
0: What I don't like is that the English National Opera at the moment here in London give cut price tickets to under 25s. And I understand why they do that because they want to introduce it to the next generation because they're the people who are going to sustain it. But I think I'd like a cut price ticket. I can't afford a full price ticket to the opera.
1: I bought a ticket once to Covent Garden that was so cheap, I couldn't actually see the stage. I'm not joking. I was behind the back person who was on a high chair. So I couldn't actually see beyond them to see the stage at all. So I stood there just listening. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I'd still want to see it, even if I'm right at the back.
0: Yeah, right.
1: I mean, there's a restricted view and there's, I can only see the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> he did a okay, film. Kind
0: of... Did he do a
1: film? He did a film. He talks about doing this film. Yes, Giorgio. And he says, i quite like to try acting. So he tried it. I Googled it. You can watch the trailer. So it was an actual film. Yeah. I couldn't get from it's, the book whether
0: it, it was made or not,
1: but it, it like is. It looks like some really dodgy 70s. Oh, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I'm sure it's really fun. And he plays an opera singer, a romantic. By the way, I really wanted to talk to you about this. There's a woman in this who's, uh, my God, what's her name? Madeline Rene. There's a chapter by her and she's a student of opera. She says, I, I wanted some training. And he said, well, if you be my assistant, my secretary... I can train you. And I, she said, I wouldn't give up my singing for anything, but becoming his secretary has become an all-encompassing job. It's about three full-time jobs. I've got to manage his daily life. I've got to manage all his fan mail, all his calls. I've got to sort everything out. I've got to get his food. I've got to make sure everything in his dressing rooms is right. It's just such an all-encompassing job and I have to trick him into making me have lessons by singing whilst I'm busy. And he'll go, no, 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 not like that. And then he'll give me a lesson. And so and it is really improving... And I'm learning so much and it's amazing. I Googled her because I thought, I wonder if she actually became an opera singer. He had an eight year affair with her.
0: Oh, did he? Yes.
1: And she became a very well-known opera singer.
0: Right. So he
1: really did train her up. (laughs) And uh, his wife divorced him in the year two thousand. Because she was fed up of his infidelities. Yeah. So this, I only Googled that after I finished this book and I was like, okay, so all your loving family life and going home to your wife and all the... And your secretary who's got a chapter. It's there. It's all there. But it's not quite presented (laughs) quite how it really is.
0: He does talk about how how he loves women. Yes. And how after a show he'll talk to everyone. As does his wife.
1: She talks about how much he loves women. She says, in the room, if he talks to men, he's very friendly. But if there's a woman, he completely changes. And he goes, oh, weird. Now, I think it's because he grew up around all these women. Yeah, So she's excusing it. But then she has to go home to raise the daughters. Yeah. So she's not there And that's the classic scenario.
0: Yeah, we find that a lot in these books. Yeah.
1: So really, if she hadn't had the kids, she'd be the secretary managing his life, which is what she started out doing Mm -hmm. and looking after everything and getting his food and all that stuff. But you can't do that and have kids and raise them as well. So she ends up not being the mistress so there you go, that's some stuff that was a bit of a bombshell. And he remarried much later in his life to a much, much younger woman. A young
0: woman, that's unusual. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, you know, she wants kids as well, for some reason. Right. They go along with having even more kids. <sighs> so that all happened after this book, but I only mentioned it really because he's given her a chapter, and I bet she was like, well, I do so much for you, I'm more your wife than your wife. If she's getting a chapter, I want a chapter. <laughs>
0: You know, talking in terms of his fan mail, to illustrate how massive he was, and not just to opera people, Mm. when they televised live from the Lincoln Centre, the broadcaster received 100,000 letters. Isn't that astonishing? absolutely immense. That's people that have been motivated... To pick up yeah. a pen and and send something to this man who moved them through the TV, yeah,
1: amazing,
0: yeah, really amazing.
1: Yeah. Oh, so we got we don't have to, but this plane crash is really oh, cool. Yes. Ask if you can have a cool plane crash, <laughs> but it's filmic because it's 1975, and he'd been suffering from a depression, the first one he really had, and he thinks it's because he spent all his life trying to get to his goal, and then he was at his goal, he was at the height of his game. And he didn't know what else to aim for. And sometimes you need a goal. And so he was depressed. And then he was on a plane from New York to Milan with a friend of his. And he liked to sit in economy class because he liked to sit over the wing. He was a nervous flyer. The wing, he felt like the safest place. But
0: he also says he likes to fly in economy because he prefers the people he meets hmm. in economy. They're just He's so nice. I know. I would like to fly in first class, but I wouldn't have to meet the people in the economy. <laughs> Whereas he specifically, he can afford well, to fly at the front of the you'd plane. You'd have to
1: try both to then weigh up the <laughs> yeah, options. Yeah, all right, yes. Who knows? But anyway, the plane, essentially, bad weather, it essentially came down at a crazy angle. Landed, went off the runway because the visibility was so bad, went into the grass. The wing hit the grass, broke off, engine broke off, hit the plane. The plane split in two right in front of them. So his row where the wing was, there was a drop to the floor in front of them. The other half of the plane was way over there. That, just the fact that it happened to be right there oh, is, yeah. is just like a film, isn't it? Him and his mate stopped all the passengers trying to jump out, because they were trying to jump out. They stopped them for safety. Someone got the emergency door open, which was right next to them, so they could go that way and slide down the wing, which probably saved a lot of people getting injured. And it was freezing cold, and they were miles away from the actual airport, somewhere on the runway, in the dark, in the cold. Anyway... His mate said he was running around the airport getting numbers of all the passengers so he could go to the phone and phone all of their families to tell them he was they were all right. Yeah. That's what he was doing. He was frantic doing it. And then at the end, he says to his mate, we were fucking lucky. <laughs> yeah, we? I know. <laughs> and, and, and then he said, I completely snapped out of my depression. I thought, I'm so lucky to be alive and I'm getting on with the rest of my life remembering how lucky I am again. Mm. Sometimes you just need something to happen to it's you. Like a plane mind crash. you. Yeah. Like plane crash right in front of your face. Yeah. Isn't that just picture of it. It's so intense. Bloody hell. Everyone was alright. The, yeah. the pilot and the co pilot were injured and got taken off to hospital, but everyone was alright.
0: Yeah, I know. A miracle that nobody died. It's kind of operatic.
1: Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> High drama.
0: You know just how nice it is like running around the airport getting everybody's numbers. The one running theme is just How lovely he is to everyone. And there's one little bit in this book that he says that after a concert in Brooklyn, he had a driver waiting for him. And the driver had been sat outside for three hours and it was freezing. And he said, when he got out of the concert hall and got into the car, it was really cold. He said he was angry with the driver for not keeping the car warm, because of course he's got to protect his voice. And so he mentioned to the driver, he said, do you know what? You should keep the car warm. Because he'd done that, he felt so bad that he wrote about it in this book. And he said, I felt terrible that I'd spoken to him like that. Because it
1: might seem like a diva.
0: Because he might seem like a diva. And then he said he remembered seeing Barbara Streisand on TV. Somebody said to her, oh, I've heard you've become a bitch since you're famous. And she said, No, I've always been a bitch. And then Pavarotti says the next line, I hope I'm not a bitch. <laughs> it's just because he yeah, yeah. said something mildly aggravating. Because this like to had a one job once. it was to
1: wait for him and to keep the car warm. And yeah. he'd only, and, and he was only worried because of his throat. Yeah. It's his job to keep his throat warm. Yeah. But he said, Whatever I am, I hope I've always been it. Yeah. So this is his main mission in life to just not be changed by this. Huge success. Yeah,
0: I totally buy that he's authentically who he appears to be at the beginning of the book. Okay, yeah. he's had this crazy successful life and he's put on a lot of weight. He talks about that. He's not happy about how big he No, he's, he's got gets. this whole
1: chapter about his love of food.
0: And he also says later in his career that he doesn't get cast as romantic leads and stuff anymore yeah. because it's unbelievable that the woman would fall in love with somebody so huge. Yeah. So he he's aware that it actually affected his career. Mm. But then he does lose a lot of weight at one point. Loses
1: it, gains it. Yeah, Italian. but he says, before you judge me, think about how big I might be if I wasn't <laughs> always trying not to eat oh. a lot. So I guess.
0: And it's Italian food.
1: How can you not eat I all know. that food?
0: Or pasta and pizza. And you're pizza. minted
1: rich as well. Yeah. You can afford all of it, the yeah. best of it. Yum. <laughs> Should we go for Bals- a pizza? Balsamic vinegar. Balsamic vinegar. <laughs> Let's go for a pizza.
0: Nice one thank you so much for listening to this episode of thrift shop biography we love making this podcast and we're absolutely thrilled that so many of you are already listening you could really help us out by leaving us a review somewhere wherever you listen to this podcast and if you could share us tell your friends about us or drop some links on social media we have a facebook page called thrift shop biography so make sure you come over there to hear about the episodes first and what else we're up to Okay, see you next week. And if you're new here, there are loads more episodes now to go and listen
1: in the back catalogue, so make sure you go and enjoy them. Okay, thank you very much.